What's going on, guys? Welcome back to episode 40 of the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. Today, we are joined by Spiros Anastas, the Director of Hockey Operations and Head Coach of the ECHL's Brampton Beast. His, he has an extensive resume going from the BCHL with the Albany Valley Bulldogs, the AHL with Grand Rapids, and even coaching the uh, South Korean under-18 under 18 team, my apologies, University, uh, University of Lethbridge, the Estonia... Um, as a, as a team consultant for the Estonia team, is that what is that world champion world championship? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Estonian under eighteen uh, and under twenty as the head coach, and the Estonian team in the Baltic Cup as the head coach. And uh, for the past couple of years, he's been staying over in Brampton with the Brampton Beast, like I mentioned. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to have you on. So you finished off your. Uh, your playing career with uh, as the captain of Lebanon Valley College for the, for the for final three years of your career. Right after that, you're immediately hired as the as uh, the assistant coach. Can you just take us through how that uh, came about? Yeah, actually, it was just kind of uh, I, I got into coaching a little bit by default. Uh, in my senior season, actually, I, I had uh, I had encountered a uh, kind of a season-ending injury. Not really, but it was pretty severe, and at the same time, uh, my uh, my college had, had fired our head coach, so it was going into the second semester, and um, I kind of got pulled aside by the athletic director, and I was the captain for my the duration of my time there, so they were just going to, for the remainder of that season, promote the assistant, and they needed some help on the bench, so he asked if I would, uh, you know, stop playing and join in as, a, as an assistant coach. So that was kind of my first foray in coaching. And it, at that point, even I wasn't sure that I'd, I'd be a coach as a career, but that's kind of how it all be, began, just kind of by chance that somebody uh, unfortunately lost their job, but then uh, the athletic director uh, just provided an opportunity. And, and that's kind of what set the spark. And I, I loved it. I, I was an assistant coach for about 10 games uh, to close out that 2009, 2010 season. And uh I knew then that's all I wanted to do. So can you take us through what your responsibilities were as a uh, as an assistant coach and as a, for lack of a better term, an inexperienced uh, coach? What was your yeah. Uh, responsibilities? Yeah, so obviously I returned to the to my alma mater the following year in a, in a obviously full season capacity. So my responsibilities grew uh, after they hired a, a new head coach and Tony Horacek. Uh, they grew from that point on. So, you know, some of it included uh, recruiting and, you know, helping with practice planning and game planning, but, you know, running pretty much everything that was outside of uh, direct hockey, hockey ops. So, you know, making sure the guys had the right grades, attending classes, uh, doing all the right things that they needed to do to stay eligible to play for our team. Uh, but when I first got started, uh, you mentioned I, I was very inexperienced. I actually had zero experience. So, for me, the biggest thing was just uh, being a liaison from the players to the head coach. You know, uh, we had obviously had some tumultuous times, uh, you know, and especially that led to our head coach being fired. And uh, as someone who had just transitioned from playing through those tumultuous times, now being somebody in a leadership role, um, I just wanted to provide a good experience for my former teammates, now my, my players. So. That was my biggest role was just developing the relationships between the coaching staff and the players and, you know, listening to them and providing the best experience they possibly could have as student. And um, 
you after uh, your two years as the assistant coach there, you went over to Western Michigan, which as a okay, I'm not, uh, my NCAA uh, knowledge isn't that vast, but um, being in Western Western Michigan, obviously being in a in in Michigan, uh, a NCAA, an NCAA hockey crazy state. Can you just take us through what the experience uh, what the experience was going from uh, a team like Lebanon Valley to a I like I like calling Detroit I like calling Detroit and then Michigan like the, the Toronto of the USA since uh, they they love their hot they love their hockey and their passion. So can you just take us through uh, like the differences between uh, both schools? Yeah, so obviously one uh, my alma mater was a Division three school, so to making the jump to Division one was pretty big for me, especially young at twenty six years old, and uh, you know you, you hit it right on the head. You know the, the state of Michigan is is a very big hockey state. Uh, you know, when you think of hockey in the U.S., obviously Minnesota uh, considers themselves a state of hockey, but then Detroit uh, considers themselves hockey town. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of hockey in the state of Michigan. Uh, Western Michigan was a real cool experience for me. I, I met Jeff Blaschel, who's now the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings, at a coaches convention for uh, college coaches down in Florida. And, uh, you know, we kind of hit it off and he offered me a job. But uh, soon after he offered me the job, he actually left for the Detroit Red Wings to become their assistant coach. And, uh, you know, I was left with a lot of uncertainty of what would happen to me and the other two assistant coaches. And then uh, I was very fortunate that Andy Murray, uh, a Canadian coaching legend, uh, who, who Brody might know a little bit about because he's from Manitoba, uh, but uh, he took over the program and he kept us on. and. And we had a really great year. And it was interesting being part of Western Michigan. You, you know, when you're a Michigan uh, college hockey team, you, you typically play a little bit second fiddle to uh, teams like University of Michigan or Michigan State. Uh, we were in the same conference at the, as them, but we ended up winning the conference championship that year. Uh, the finals was against University of Michigan. So that was a pretty big rivalry and a really exciting game. Uh, so we, uh, we had a really good year, but the jump was, was, Difficult at first, it was a lot faster, more skilled players. You're talking about NHL drafted players, future NHLers, our whole, almost our whole decor from that team uh, ended up playing in the NHL. Uh, so a lot more skill. So it was, you know, beyond any level that I had played at, I, the highest level I played was division three. So now I was coaching guys that are playing at a higher level than I ever played at. So that was an adjustment for me too. Um, but a lot of the same responsibilities spilled over and it was all about just building good relationships and, and being there to give them the absolute best student athlete experience really grew in my uh, video capabilities at, at Western Michigan University. I was uh, on top of being an assistant coach of the program. I was kind of the video coordinator. Uh, so that's where I really started to get a knack for how to cut video, uh, look, learn what to look for. And one of the other assistant coaches, Pat Fershweiler, he can analyze video and pick up on things better than any coach I've ever worked with. So it was really a great uh, working on that staff. So we're going to get further into your time with Grand Rapids later on. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff Lashel, the, uh, the uh, head coach of Grand Rapids at the time, he offered you that position. And he ended up, lead, he, as m most people in the hockey world knows, he, end, he ended up uh, leaving to join the the big club as the assistant coach. So how did that go in? Like, was that guarantee still in place uh, 
it would, sorry, was that guarantee being in place what led to you being the assistant coach of Grand Rapids or can you just take a step? Yeah, no, there was really no guarantee of anything. Like when he hired me at Western Michigan and he left, there were actually a number of uh, candidates uh, for the Western Michigan job that I, I believe had planned to bring their, um, their own staffs in. So, you know, we were under a lot of stress and anxiety as a coaching staff. Me, I was new, I was young. The other two guys were there for a year already and, and they had families, so even more stress for them. So there was no guarantee uh, when Andy came in, but the following year, um, you know, Jeff Blaschel gets uh, an opportunity to be a head coach within the Red Wings organization. So he goes from being an assistant in Detroit uh, to a head coach in Grand Rapids. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I impressed upon him enough uh, through my interview with Western that he brought me along with him to, to Grand Rapids, but that was, that was never a guarantee or a promise. It was just, uh, you know, you get to know people in the game. It's a who you know business, but you have to impress them as well. And we had done well at Western Michigan. I'd actually started a job with the uh, Alberni Valley Bulldogs in the BCHL. Uh, and I didn't get hired into the season in the American League uh, that following year. So, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a coincidence how things worked out. But I was very fortunate to be able to finally work with Flash in Grand Rapids and get to learn under him as well. So in a way, I got to have two really great mentors in the game um, after Flash left Western Michigan. So uh, to, uh, to go through all that. I kind of want to go back a little bit to when you said uh, at the end of the semester, you became the coach with um, Lebanon Valley. Did you find it easier or harder in that locker room being that you were kind of one since you're the captain you're probably a big presence in that locker room did you find that helped you as a coach or do you think that hindered you a little bit uh you know what I think I think it was pretty easy in the sense that the guys trusted me uh you know when I say that we had a tough couple seasons like it was really tough there were a lot of uh outside the rink things that happened within our coaching staff and even with a lot of players that came in and out that you probably could dedicate a whole podcast to just in talking to that. So without getting too deep into that, um, being the leader of that team, I was a captain for four years. Um, I think I just had a lot of trust of the players. So it was easy in the sense of them to buy into anything that I was doing. Uh, the difficult part though, was just learning how to draw the line between friendships and uh, working relationships and adjusting for me, like literally the weekend before, I was coaching, I was out partying with, you know, with these guys. And, uh, you know, one guy on the team was my roommate, so I'm living with him. So, you know, we're, we're, it was a fine balance of me closing out my college years and enjoying him, enjoying my last semester, but also uh, kickstarting my coaching career. So it was easy in the sense that there was trust uh, because I had built that trust of being a captain with the players, but it was difficult in, uh, transitioning from being a, a teammate to a coach uh, because it, for at least the last two months of the season, because that's what I was a coach for, I had to put some things on hold. And that was, you know, going out with the boys and enjoying the extracurriculars. Um, you know, and by the time our, our season was over in February, uh, then I could return to doing that in my, in my senior, my senior year as a, as a college student. But, uh, that was the most difficult part. Yeah. You got your roommate there. Uh... Uh, trying to get you to give him some extra ice time, uh, trying to talk to the coach a little bit. 
Yeah, you know what? Thankfully, never resorted to that. I, I think they knew that I was just kind of filling in a gap at the time. So they uh, they never, I had really great friends, especially my senior class that I graduated with. So they never put me in any tough predicaments. And uh, those three guys that I graduated with are on my bridal party at my wedding and they're my best friends to this day. So uh, they knew I was in a tough spot. So they didn't make it any harder on me. So thankfully that didn't happen. What did you study? Uh, I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. Uh, so I was actually a triple major in Economics, Business and Men and uh, Accounting. Uh, so it was, wow. uh, yeah, I was fortunate. I, I had done a year at the University of Guelph before my last uh, year in junior. So I was able to transfer some credits. So I was able to, to tack on a, another major. So if it wasn't for that, that probably would have been difficult to do, but uh, I did that. And then uh, a couple of years later, while I was at uh, Western Michigan, actually, I did a, a master's program through Canisius College, uh, master's of uh, sports administration. So that's, that's what I studied. And that was a little bit more practical for me because I got to connect my, uh, my business degrees and economics degrees into the world of sport. And while it, it doesn't connect directly to coaching um, in a lot of the jobs I've had, like a head coach at University of Michigan and a head coach in uh, the ECHL, you wear a lot of hats. So uh, I'm thankful that I, I went through that two-year program. Thread on, a thread on every side, five, five majors, captain of the hockey team, uh, assistant coach, best flow I've seen in about six months. <laughs> you know what? This I appreciate you uh, mentioning the flow. The flow, it hasn't been this long since my sophomore year at Lebanon Valley College. So that's 2007. Um, but you know what? Pandemic times, you know, we, we, we got ourselves outside the box here. The, the, the barbershops were closed for a while and then they reopened, but the flow was gone. So I was like, forget it. Like, let's, let's you got to keep it. You got to keep it. Yeah, as you can see from uh, this <laughs> awful, awful little job I got over here. It's been a long time since I got to cut myself. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate the, uh, the props on that. Thanks, man. All right, so we're going to go a little more in-depth into your different, uh, into your other uh, endeavors in coaching and, and management, but um, present day you're working as Director of Hockey Ops and Head Coach of the Brampton Beast of ECHL. Um, can you just take us through what goes into being a Director of Hockey Ops, your different responsibilities, how it differs from, like, for, say, for example, a general manager? Yeah, so the ECHL, uh, it's it's a unique business, right? And that's what it is, obviously. Uh, you know, it, we are a hockey team, but it is a business. So you'll find if you look through the list of coaches in the league, uh, a number of them, most of them have that title of director of hockey ops slash head coach. Uh, typically in the ECHL, there's uh, president and general manager. Um, you know, the, the president, we have a guy, a guy who's in the dual role. President general manager oversees everything. They generally manage the, the whole organization from ticket sales to, uh, you know, sponsorships and marketing, but also they're the liaison to hockey ops. You know, I run everything through him, uh, you know, because a lot of hockey ops in, in the ECHL, you know, affects the business because things, there's a cost and there's a, you know, there's travel and there's meals and even in acquisitions of players. Uh, so that's why in the ECHL, you'll see the president and general manager, you'll see the head coach and director of hockey ops. So in a sense, my title, I'm responsible for building the team on the ground level. You know, I do the recruiting, 
you know, we have some scouts and we're, we do have a team effort in terms of, of you know, who we identify as pros, prospects. And that includes uh, looping in our president and general manager as well. Um, but for the most part, we, as a coaching staff, uh, do the groundwork and I oversee that. And then we present, uh, you know, what we have to, you know, what we feel we have to do to build a good team to our president and general manager so he can kind of give us a green light on, on the financial side of things. So um, director hockey ops for, for most ECHL coaches means recruit, uh, sign, uh, then make sure everything's in order in terms of immigration, travel, uh, housing, because we have to provide housing in our league. Uh, so there's just a lot of detail that goes into it. And then within our, our season itself, the bus, the hotels, the accommodations, the, the meals, the, the per diems, uh, so a director of hockey ops is a real vast title that uh, includes a lot of responsibilities. So, you know, bringing it back to when we were talking about my degree in sports administration, uh, you'd really do wear a lot of hats. You know, coaching a lot of days feels like it's only, you know, 25% of your job because of all the things you have to do as the director of hockey operations. So um, that's, that's pretty much the, the bulk of it, you know, anywhere from recruiting and, and building the team to taking care of where they're going to live, how they're going to cross borders, uh, how they're going to be accommodated when we're on the road uh, and everything. And then communicating that to the president and GM who, who ultimately makes final decisions because they, they run the business and uh, every dollar has to go through them. And we have a, a really great president and GM and Kerry Kaplan, and he's really easy to work with. And he allows me to have kind of free reign to build the team uh, as long as, I'm pretty transparent with our plan and what we're doing. And he's been a great resource for me uh, in all aspects of the game. So uh, that's typically how it works in the ECHL. And if you look through most teams, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand because we all relate to the NHL, right? We know that there's a general, general manager who signs and negotiates deals. And then there's a head coach who just coaches. So it's not like that in our league. It's, you got to wear a lot of hats, uh, so we usually have head coaches and director of hockey ops, and we have presidents and general managers in, in the ECHL. Within the ECHL, do you ever find that uh, since there's so little goalie sp or spots for goalies, do you find that the level of goaltending will sometimes exceed the levels of players in that league, or do you find that it's not kind of that way? Uh, you know what? I'm going to take a cop-out answer on that question because it's a great question, Brody. But uh, I'm going to say yes and no uh, because it literally is day-to-day -day yes and no. So I would say the, the goaltending position is the high, highest touted uh, skill set position in, in our league simply because when you dive into the depth chart of NHL franchises, that's where the the – the highest level prospect is going to find, you know, is bound to be. Uh, so for instance, we had Joey Decord last year, who I think is going to be a future goalie for the Ottawa Senators. Um, typically an organization is only six deep. So, you know, goaltending is a big and important position and they need players and young goalies to get those reps, get those games, get those challenges, those road, uh, games, those back-to-back. So that's why we get a, a really high, highly touted prospect uh, like a Joey Decord. This year, we were supposed to get uh, Kevin Mandelis, um with us, but obviously our season got canceled. But um, so yes, in that sense, because no matter what NHL prospect gets to us, typically the goalie is the one that they're keeping the closest eye on. Uh, 
And, you know, like you mentioned, there's only two positions at each level. Uh, so, you know, that guy is not as far deep on the depth chart as a forward that might be joining us. Um, but I'll say no in the sense because that typically they're very young. Uh, so they're really young prospects with high ceilings and high skill sets. Um, but there could be first year pros, their first year facing pro shots. Like we got guys in our league that have already been to the mountaintop and back. Guys that have played in the NHL, guys that have had long careers in the American League. And now they're kind of dwindling down and they're finishing off on veteran contracts with us. Um, so in that sense, they're very young and they're facing shots and calibers that they've never faced before. Uh, so it is a hybrid answer. It is yes and no. Uh, yes for the, the upside and ceiling of, of where they're going, but no in the sense of their actual years of experience. Um, so as like you said, the season is canceled with the pandemic. Um, how does your job uh, change? How does your job change now that the season's canceled and the like? The future is a bit uncertain with this with the pandemic going on and all the craziness in the world. Yeah, it was. It's been a difficult twenty twenty one season for a lot of people, whether you're playing or not. It's it's been difficult. Uh, so we officially found out in November that we weren't going to go forth with the season along with 12 other teams in our league. Uh, so basically that's half the league, half the league's not playing, half the league is playing. Uh, so for me, a lot of er the early part of the 2021 season was preparing to play, uh, signing players, uh, building a great team, holding over some of the guys we wanted to keep from last year and going through that entire process and then keeping the communication lines open with the players uh, with updates of, of, you know, what it looked like was going to happen. When the season ended up not happening, uh, it, it shifted into kind of maintenance of the relationships with those players. Some guys want to continue playing. Some guys opted to just take the year off. Some guys wanted to play in the ECHL because they were allowed to sign with other teams at that point. And some guys thought, you know what, maybe this is an opportunity to go overseas. So then my job almost became like a secondary agent to these guys. A lot of them have their own representatives, but being a support system for them to see what opportunities were available within our league in the ECHL. Um, you know, some of them still aspired to get tryouts in the American League, so seeing what was available for that, and then helping others that wanted a new experience get to Europe. So in a total, the 18 guys that we signed, only five are currently active playing. A lot of other guys are still looking for jobs or, or just opted to just take the year off. Um, you know, playing this game that we love is, is always a privilege in any regular year, but this year it's especially a privilege to get ice under your feet at a competitive level, because even if you go down the ranks, even further down the ladder to leagues like the Southern Professional Hockey League or the, even the Federal League, which is the lowest level of pro in North America, um, there's less teams playing. The SPHL, which is a 10-team league, they're only operating with five this year. Um, you know, so it, it may increase the competitive level and the caliber in each league, but it means less jobs for guys. Uh, you know, I, I see point a game ECHL wave because there's just so many good players and less spots. So, um, you know, my job has shifted to just keeping guys positive, letting them know that they're not going to be judged on anything next year, what happened in, in 2021, whether they played or they didn't or played and played uh, in a in a lower role or in a lower league, we're going to just all start with a clean slate in 21, 22. 
And then for me personally, it's just uh, keeping tabs on potential free agents in the future. I need to build a team for 21, 22. So keeping tabs on guys who are playing, watching video, guys who are graduating, guys who are coming out of youth sports or NCAA or um, major junior and making sure that I, I'm keeping my thumb on, on a lot of future prospects for our organization and keeping myself sharp. A lot of Zoom calls, uh, whether they're podcasts like this where I can talk about myself and my process or also learning. You know, the NHLCA has done a great job providing coaches with learning opportunities, um, but there's also peer-to-peer -peer opportunities. There's a lot of coaches that aren't coaching right now. So we get together, we share ideas, and we stretch our thought a little bit. Uh, so that's kind of what I've been doing over the last number of months. But trust me, I'm, I'm very ready to get on the ice uh, for 21-22. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, the players are as well. Um, so from um, like from an in from an insider, like from like a, um, an employee uh, manager management perspective, take us through like why how like like you said half the league is playing, half the league is not playing for the season. Can you take us through that thought process as to why the league decided to cut half the league? Yeah, there's a number of factors. Uh, first and foremost, if you look at the teams that have opted out of the season, obviously the two Canadian teams, uh, Brampton and, and Newfoundland, have opted out. Uh, number one clear-cut reason there is we can't cross the border, right? Uh, the border is shut. Uh, NHL teams can't even cross the border to play games. So that's why they de they've developed the Canadian division in the NHL. So we unfortunately can't have a Canadian division in uh, the ECHL because it'd just be us and, and Newfoundland and that'd be insane. And, and there'd probably be some dead bodies we'd have to clean up <laughs> if we played 60 games against each other over and over again. So uh, obviously that didn't make a lot of sense for those two organizations. If you look at the other teams that have um, opted out, they are, for the most part, teams in the Northeast. Um, so in states with greater restrictions uh, and in states that have done a better job managing cases and be better job not letting it spread like wildfire because we know the U.S. is having some trouble, but they've done a better job in that because of the restrictions. So uh, they're not going about, about to let a bunch of people in a building uh, to play games. And that's another factor there in itself. ECHL teams can't afford to play games without fans. Um, so all that together creates the Northeast, the, the entire North division, which is our division, opted out together on the same day. So that was six teams just pulling out the same day, which I believe was like mid-November. So, um, so that's the main reason. If you look at the teams that are playing the ECHL, teams in Texas, teams in Florida, teams in South Carolina, um, they, they're just a lot looser on this for whatever reason. Like I'm not going to judge uh, certain states or certain people, but um, a lot of times it looks like they don't care, right? So they got they have they're having two three thousand fans in the building, so they're able to operate from a business perspective, and uh, they're able to play, and and they're not, uh, you know, they're not taking it seriously on that end. But our league has said if you're going to play, you got to have pretty strict uh, COVID protocols. So I will say our league has done a good job to manage that. Um, there's been some outbreaks on some teams. There's been some guys put on the COVID exemption list, um, but they're powering through down there because they have the capability to do it because there's no restrictions in their states. So that ultimately is it. Um, was there ever the opportunity to do what, like, uh, what the Blue Jays did this past summer and what the Raptors are doing right now and play in a different city, different, um, where the restrictions are lowered, where you can actually have fans in the arenas, like for example, going down to of Florida and playing there like the Raptors have been doing not very good, not very well, but they've been doing it. 
Yeah, I think I think all possible scenarios were looked at. Uh, you know, I, I know that uh, Newfoundland looked at, at location. I had heard rumors. I never got confir confirmation that potentially Brampton and Newfoundland were going to consider a location together and share some costs. But ultimately, we don't have in the ECHL, uh, there aren't many, you know, billionaire owners that can flip bills and stuff like that. Like we rely heavily on, on gate revenue and all that. And to shift to a new location where there isn't a fan base, uh, it was just too much of a risk for our owners. So it was sheer business decision. As much as we all like to believe in our heart of hearts that we want to see the game go on because we love the game. Um, in our league, at least, there aren't many people willing to lose that much money. Um, yeah. And the, really, at the NHL level, they, they don't want to lose that much money, but they're able to at least lose a little bit. Uh, so we did consider all options, but it wasn't a very realistic one. For me. You make a very good point. Like, I know even with my like with myself as a, as a lifelong hockey fan, like, you always get the, like regardless of the situation, there's always like the thought of, Oh, the show must go on. The show must go on. There must be like, for the love of the game must be playing. Like you have to play games. But if this means that people are going to be losing million, like millions of dollars, people are going to be losing like an obscene amount of money. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And a lot of ECHL teams operate on a losing, uh, on a losing ledger anyway, uh, you know, for different reasons, you know, we, I, I'm not rich enough to know how it works, but uh, you know, you know how you know. Sometimes losses are welcomed, right? Because they're we're tied into other businesses or anything like that. Um, you know, so the, it has to make sense financially in an accounting basis for for owners. Uh, but you know, it just uh, it was hard. And, and and you know, the way we looked at it is when we got into 2021, because um, that's ultimately when the season started anyway thought do we want to you you know scrape and scrap to find a way to play in early 2021 and potentially compromise our future or just say look we're going to play in 2021 but it's not going to be until October and we can go out and waste a bunch of money this year and do things rushed and kind of half-assed um, we're going to fully commit to being great for October 2021 uh, so let's put our resources into that um, and I think that was the right approach ultimately for the Brampton Bees and probably, I can't speak for other organizations, but probably for them as well. I'd like to hear it. I'd like to hear it. It's going to be, it's going to be exciting watching you guys next season. Playing point, playing about half hour from, uh, from my home. So I'm going to come up. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be nice to come down and watch the games. Good. Looking forward to having you out there. As you said with the NHL, with the losing money, they did something that kind of surprised a lot of people and irritated a lot of people with uh, helmet ads. And then they went and they sponsored the division. So they got each division to have its own sponsor. So did ECHL ever look at something like that? I know they don't have the same amount of, how do I want to say, like reach to different people. So businesses will be less reluctant to, but did they ever kind of look into anything sort of like, sort of like that? Uh, yeah, so the ECHL and even the American League, uh, we are actually allowed to have sponsorships on jerseys and on helmets uh, already. Uh, I mean, we have sponsorship, uh, league-wide sponsorship on our posts. Our, our, our posts in, uh, in the ECHL are blue uh, because of Geico sponsorship. So our nets are blue. Uh, so the ECHL is all about selling our brand and getting sponsorships uh, anywhere they can, um, you know, obviously we're not as much of a 
desire for major corporations because they want to get their name on the national league level because obviously you reach bigger markets but um i had never heard any consideration for selling division names but i bet you it's going to be one now uh you know because the nhl has set that precedent uh i know it it irritated some people but we live in an age where advertising is is king right and making money especially after we've lost so much money um and they're going to operate with no fans for the most part this year they got to do what they got to do. So, you know, traditionalists are great. And there's uh, parts of the game that we want to savor for as long as we can. But, uh, you know, if you're not growing, if you're not changing uh, and staying stagnant, you're, you're doing a disservice to every, every stakeholder in the game. So, so I'm for it. Uh, I'm for it as long as it's tactful, right? And I think the way they did it was tactful. They still kept the central and uh, obviously, they made a Canadian division, they, but they kept the traditional names in terms of Central, West, whatever. But now it's the Honda Central or, or whatever it is. I don't want to butcher it too much. Um, I think it's a fantastic idea. And I, I, I'd, I'd wager, although it's way above my scope, I'd wager the ECHL will follow uh, one way or another. As long as it doesn't lead to like uh, to advertisements like having the Spangler Cup in, uh, in Europe where the entire jersey is full of logos. Yeah, some people like that. Some people don't. Uh, you know, the Spangler Cup's actually my favorite tournament. And uh, for a lot more reasons than just the advertisements, but I think that's what sparked it when I was a kid. I was enthralled by the images on jerseys, helmets, on the ice. Um, so you, you, you never know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would, 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 would be opposed to that if we, if we got there. I kind of want to jump back a bit to your time with the Grand Rapids Griffins. So at the time, the goalie there was Preeter Mrazek, and I don't know how much you got to watch him but or how much uh, you follow goalies, especially as assistant coach, but he had a 9-1-6-8 percentage in that time. And did you foresee him being an NHL starter, or was he, was he not very touted at the time, or was he a very high, highly touted prospect? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So as I uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, I actually didn't get hired in – until a month into the season. Um, so it was about, it was, I think it was around Halloween time. Uh, basically Jeff Blasio was operating with one assistant coach because uh, what the Grand Rapids Griffins traditionally did, but a month in he, he had recognized he needed somebody else. So I was fortunate to get the call. So actually uh, the release, the release that announced me as, as a new assistant coach was coupled with the release that they were calling up Peter Morazic from the ECHL. So we actually kind of, we got in on the same day. Uh, so to answer your question there, before I arrived, I don't think he was touted to be a starter because they had sent him to the ECHL. He was with the Toledo Walleye. He was a rookie, uh, similar to what I explained to you earlier about the goalies in the ECHL. I think they wanted him to get his repetitions, his games, uh, get used to North American pro, pro hockey. Um, I think they called him up at a necessity. I think the uh, one of the goalies wasn't performing to the level that they expected and uh, they just wanted a change in the short term, but he came in and he was lights out. Like he just, he won the job right away. Um, I think there were some things he needed to learn to how to be a good pro, his practice habits, his attention to detail, his uh, acceptance of guidance and uh, tutelage from goalie coaches. Uh, while that had nothing to do with me, obviously I was there every day and I saw it. He was very fortunate to be working with Chris Osgood and, uh, you know, he was the development goalie coach and, 
even Jim Bedard, who was the, the Detroit Red Wings goalie coach, came down and spent a lot of time with him. And he had a really good tandem mate in, uh, you know, in Tommy McCollum, who had was a highly touted prospect that, you know, never quite made it and had spent a number of years in Grand Rapids. So he had a lot of people kind of in his ear, uh, but he did need to learn how to be a good pro. So I think everyone recognized his compete level, his fire, the chip on his shoulder uh, that he had early on and his skill set. But then the, the focus turned into how do we make him learn how to be a pro? Uh, and the Red Wings really did uh, do a good job at that between Chris Osgood, Jim Bedard, um, even guys that he played with like Tommy McCollum. Um, they, it made him a more well-rounded goaltender and he, and he was lights out for us. He, he took us all the way to the Calder Cup that year. Um, like you mentioned, you had Chris Osgood as the uh, developmental goalie coach on that team. Uh, did he have Did he have any any influence on your uh, on your career though? Like though he wasn't at the time he wasn't as experienced as a co uh, as a coach. Like with his time in, in the NHL, playing I want to say 20, 20 years plus uh, in the NHL, did he give you any uh, any bits of advice about how um, uh, like about like the industry in general? Yeah, I actually built a fantastic relationship with Ozzy. Uh, you know, I, I would consider him a friend to this day. We probably don't keep in touch as much as as we should, uh, but, you know, I'll send him the odd text and he'll text back. Um, he was actually my favorite guy. And that's not a surprise. Cause I think he's everyone's favorite teammate from those Red Wings teams and everyone's favorite guy. Like he was the favorite guy I encountered. And I encountered some great people, Chris Chelios, Yuri Fisher, Maltby, Draper, all those legends were working with the Red Wings. Cause that's what the Red Wings do. They take care of their people. Uh, so I met some fantastic people, but he was just my favorite because he was the most down to earth. So he did teach me a lot about what it takes to just be a good guy. And that's what, you know, that's how you move up the ranks being a good guy. And he's not coaching any longer. He, he found a, a career that, that he loves in, in broadcasting and he's on the uh, Spock, uh, Fox sports Detroit uh, broadcast as an analyst now. And he's fantastic at that because he's got a great personality and, and a good head for the game. But he really taught me how, how to be, you know, easygoing and, and relate with people and, and also brush things off your shoulder, right? Because it's a long season. It's a long career. Uh, it's a lot of stress. Uh, so I loved him because he always brought that presence. You know, he took his job seriously, but everything could be laughed off. Uh, so, yeah, he, he did teach me a lot. And he was, he's a great friend and a great person to a lot of people. And I, everyone knows that because they always hear how, you know, Ozzy's just loved, right? So, he, um, yeah, he did. He taught me a lot. After, uh, you actually went to coach, assistant coach at University Aid Team Canada. Like before looking at this and re researching this, I'd never heard of that. And can you kind of break down the level of competition that is? Because it's it's organized by the universities, correct? Yeah. So the so the uh, the the Universiade, uh, how they call it, but really in in English terms, it's it's known as the World University Games. Um, it actually is the second biggest event uh, next to the Olympics in terms of uh, number of athletes that participate and, uh, you know, number of countries. Um, so there's, there's summer, there's winter. It, it pretty much is a university Olympics. And uh, in Canada, the representation in Canada is organized by U Sports uh, or when I was involved in CIS. Uh, so those are the players that Canada sends. Uh, so we, every year, the way it used to work was every year it would, uh, it would switch from one conference to another. Uh, 
Uh, so one year, the Canada West Conference builds the team. One year, the OUA. The next year, the AUS. And it just keeps going in that circle. There's been some uh, anomalous years where the playoffs uh, don't align and it doesn't work, where U Sports sends a total all-star team and stuff like that. But generally, that's what they like to do. So it was actually my first year in the CIS as a head coach. And typically, um, those coaching staffs are, are based by seniority. But I just, I literally lucked out. Uh, you know, they sent five coaches, uh, you know, a head coach, two associate coaches, um, an assistant coach was a me. But I also acted as the video coach. And then a guy who, who acts as a general manager. Um, and I just lucked out by so many guys saying they couldn't go because I was last on the depth chart for that because I was a first year head coach at the University of Leth Lethbridge. So I got a call in September from the senior coaches, Dave Adolph, who just recently retired. He'd been, a, you know, he's coached for 26 years in new sports and uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. He was the head coach of Team Canada going there. And uh, he just said, hey, we're running out of options. You want to join us? And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll take this opportunity. So it's a fantastic event. And you go there, you're playing against, you know, KHL uh, players, draft picks in Russia, like, Canada has chosen that we're going to send university players. Uh, the U.S. has chosen that they're sent, they, they send the, uh, the ACHA players, the, the club hockey level players. So they haven't, they've chosen not to send their best. Uh, but that's who they send. The, the Russians, they go in it to win it. Like they send KHL guys uh, and they'll, they'll enroll them in one online university course and now they, they they're eligible for the university ad so it's it's high level hockey like if you ever can get your hands on on video from those tournaments like it's intense and uh you know we uh, we did it all right we won the the bronze but but the true gold medal game of that tournament was the semifinal us versus russia we had beat them in the uh, round robin and then we faced in, in semifinal we knew whoever won that game was going to cruise to gold um, and unfortunately we lost in shootout, uh, but it was really great hockey and it, and it's put on just like the world junior event that you see the Olympic events that you see, it's an IIHF sanctioned tournament and it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you, you know, you, uh, you get to do it in some pretty cool places. The, the year I did was in Spain. So it was a fantastic opportunity. So it's, it's cool that the U sports athletes get an opportunity to, to compete, to win a spot on that team uh, at least once in their four or five year careers and on that team sorry you're gonna have uh you're gonna have ovechkin datsuk and uh Kovta playing down there because uh they're uh, because they get enrolled in uh, the university of moscow one uh <laughs> class coming down with a russian gas by the kilo well you know what's funny uh the canadians actually used to do that too back when the canadians had a full-time uh team canada program that's the team that you would enter the Universiade. Uh, it would be Team Canada. So Jim Pack, who I got to coach with in Grand Rapids and with the Koreans, he spent one full year with Team Canada back when they had the full season program. And that's what they did then too. They, they enrolled all those, those NHL caliber players in an online course and they went and they won the uh, World University Games Tournament. So the Russians are still doing that. Canada no longer does that, but uh, funny that it happens. On your university ad team, uh, actually, it was Cody Curran who played defense, and he's actually projected to get an NHL role this year. So 
Uh, watching him play, do you think uh, he, he should be able to translate his play into the NHL game? Yeah, he's a real dynamic player. Uh, he was great that tournament. Uh, I think he might have made the all-tournament team. I, I don't know for sure, but he was fantastic. He actually unfortunately got hurt in that uh, semifinal game, so he didn't play in the bronze medal game with us, but uh, he was really dynamic. He's just kind of one of those, you know, that it's a cliche term, but he, he, he was a little bit of a late bloomer, but at the same time, maybe he just wasn't given the opportunity. And Mark Howell at the university of Calgary did a fantastic job for him. Like he recruited him out of a uh, tier two junior a, which typically the guys that get all of the opportunities, especially in Canada, West hockey at the university level are major junior guys that play the WHL, but Cody Curran exploded for Mark uh, at the UFC. And then he just kept getting better every opportunity he got. And he made the most of every opportunity. So from what I remember of him, real dynamic guy that moves the puck, skates really well, shoots hard, creates offense, but is also reliable in his D zone. So, um, you know, he, he's made a great career for himself. I haven't seen him play personally in a number of years, but uh, he had a great attitude. Everyone loved him. Great teammate as well. So really happy to see guys like him uh, succeed. And uh, I think he will. I think it'll transition well for him. So uh, like you mentioned, like you mentioned, um, you were coaching with the with the Korean team uh, as a Greek Canadian, uh, Greek Canadian. Uh, how did you get that those positions for the Estonian team for the Korean team, um, et cetera? Like how did those how did those opportunities come about? Yeah, so obviously uh, as a Greek Canadian, it's it's a little odd. You know, I, I uh, I'm a little bit probably a ways away from coaching Team Canada. I hope I do one day. Uh, and Team Greece, unfortunately, is no longer. Uh, they were. They did have a team at the lowest level of IHF competition, but uh, they don't anymore. So, so uh, yeah, it, uh, people ask me that all the time, seeing uh, trying to, it's hard for them to connect the dots to Korea and Estonia. So it's quite simple, actually. As I mentioned just before, I, I worked with uh, Jim Pack um, with uh, the Grand Rapids Griffins. He was an assistant coach with Grand Rapids for nine years, and he was there when I joined. So we worked two full years together. We built a a really good friendship uh, and still friends to this day. Uh, we left the Griffins in the same year. Uh, I left to become the University of uh, Lethbridge head coach and he left for to be the director of coaching uh, for all programs of uh, South Korean's national program and the head coach for their men's team uh, that same summer. But I, I had left for the University of Lethbridge first and then at my wedding, I got married that July. At my wedding, he kind of broke the news to me that he was leaving uh, GR to take that Korean team uh, role as well and and you know we had been talking over that summer and, and the one cool thing about uh, youth sports hockey is if you win the whole damn thing you're done in early March uh, so for for most teams that don't get to go play in the national tournament you're actually done in February um, so I knew that my spring would be wide open and coming from Grand Rapids where we won a Calder Cup on June 20th and then the following year in our defense uh, we made it I think to May 26, like that's a lot of hockey. So uh, I wasn't ready to be done coaching in February or March, even though I knew that's, that's as far as I could go. So talking to Jimmy, uh, I, he asked if I would commit my spring to helping him out with the Koreans. Uh, so we had a relationship already. So that's how I ended up being his assistant coach with the men's team and the head coach uh, with the U18 team. And, you know, that in, entailed me going in the summers for selection camps and then spending a lot of weeks um, there for the U18 prep, the U18 tournament, uh, whatever country that happened to be in, 
And then eventually the same thing for the men's side. So I, I'd be gone for 10 to 12 weeks in the spring, uh, dedicating my time uh, to the Korean national program. And I was fortunate the University of Lethbridge allowed me to do that. Uh, it was still before the recruiting period really uh, heated up. I still had to, you know, do my job for Lethbridge, make those recruiting calls and make sure, you know, all the orders and stuff for equipment and stuff for next year were there, but they were very supportive of that. So that's how I got involved with the Koreans. Um, I the plan was to stay with them through the Olympics uh, and see that through, but uh, life happens. I started having children. Uh, so uh, we, um, the first year I was with the Koreans, I, I I, my wife was pregnant with our first child and the second year she was pregnant with our second child with uh, a young, uh, you know, one-year-old baby. So I missed the first trimester of both of my wife's pregnancies and going into the third year, we had thought that that likely was going to be too difficult for her. So we made the decision together that although I would have loved to live a, a lifelong dream to see it out for four years uh, and go to the Olympics, I just couldn't leave her for 10 to 12 weeks at a time now with two young young, uh, you know, babies. So uh, we made the, the decision together as a family that I wasn't going to pursue that. Anymore. But lo and behold, um, my first year as a U18 coach with Korea, we won the gold medal at our respective division in Estonia. Uh, so while I was in Estonia, I met all their delegates, their presidents, their, all their managers, and, and they treated us so well and we made good relationships. So when they heard I was no longer with Korea, they started hounding me. Uh, Typically, head coaching positions in Estonia meant that you were the head coach of all their teams, men's U18, U20, and it was a full-time role. But uh, they were kind of in a transition year, so they were going to do one year as a, as a part-time basis. But they were hounding me, like, they, we need you here. We, we liked you. You did a great job with the Koreans. Can you come? And I was like, no, this is why I left the Koreans. I don't want to do it. I, I don't think it, it's right. And they're like, well, it's just one year because we're going to eventually hire a full-time coach. We just need a stopgap guy. Um, and they just kept coming back at me. And they're like, what if we told you um, that it was, you'd never be here for more than 10 days at a time, like a little mini camp and then the tournament. What if we told you that we'll pay you 300 euros a, a day while you're here? So you know, it just, it kept coming, kept coming. Eventually it was my wife that said, you know what, you got to do it. Like, this is extra money. You're never going to be gone for more than 10 to 14 days. Uh, just do it because it's different than the, the Korean experience where I had to be gone for 12 weeks at a time. So, so that's how I ended up in Estonia for a year and a half there is because of the and building those relationships in Estonia. So that's how the two are connected. And, and it's hard to, to obviously connect that uh, unless you know the story behind it. So to answer your question, that's how I ended up with those two nations. Would you say those two nations are really competitive when it comes to hockey? Because that's not the first hockey country that comes to your mind when you think of hockey countries. But uh, initially, no, uh, the uh, the Koreans weren't. They 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 kind of ranged between uh, Division Two A and Division One B. Uh, you know, as as a nation, and they found themselves in Division One A. So as as everyone knows the championship level, right? All the big dogs, Canada, US, but then under that, the IIHF has a number of tournaments, uh, D1A, D1B, D2A, right down to D3B. Uh, so there's like seven levels of tournaments that happen. And that's why every year we see a new team that joins the big dogs, whether it's a Kazakhstan or a Belarus, like it, it, they all change, right? They're interchangeable because underneath there's all that, that's happening through all the levels. 
but when we joined Korea, we obviously knew they were going to be the in the Olympics. So it was a goal to get them as competitive as possible, change their their development, change their outlook on how the game is played. Um, they were a team that had a lot of skill, a lot of speed, uh, but they had they'd have to win games like eight to seven. So going in there and changing their defensive mindset of how to play hockey. Uh, so by the end of it, uh, obviously they had an automatic bid to the Olympics, but that same year, they actually had qualified to play with the big dogs in the top level of world championships. Um, so Jim Pack did a fantastic job. We took that men's team from Division One B, winning a gold, get to Division One A, uh, and then eventually uh, earning promotion uh, through winning a silver because they promote two out of Division One A through winning a silver um, to join the top level championship. Now that happened after my time there, so I was there from the Division One B to Division One A promotion. Uh, so that was cool. They got to the top. Estonia, uh, same kind of story. They're still developing. Uh, they are in Division One B. Uh, a couple years ago, they won their first medal. That was after I departed, but they won their first medal, uh, winning a bronze in Division One B. And I know they have the goals to continue growing. They have a lot of young prospects, good prospects that are playing in Finnish and Swedish uh, leagues. Uh, so they're hoping that they do get there one day, but it takes time, right? There we forget because now there are staples in the in the big dog group, uh, you know, Switzerland and Austria and Germany. We've we've become more familiar with those countries as big hockey nations because they're playing with the big dogs. Maybe they're not meddling so much quite yet, but they're there. So we've become more familiar with them. But when I was younger, those teams didn't exist. They were playing in the lower levels. They were playing in in Division Two. 2A and stuff like that. So it, it takes time to just reach that level. Um, but I, I, I could see Estonia getting there and, and South Korea sticking and getting back uh, to the top level. Yeah, I, I can because they're, they're investing in the development that's needed. Um, did All you right. end up running into um, Estonia, a, Estonian native, but like I think he knows five, like he's from basically five different countries, Leo Komarov. Did you ever end up running it, uh, running into him when you were working with the uh, the men's team? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I know that he he did some some promotional stuff in Estonia prior to my arrival there, um, but uh, they love him. They, they're all big fans of Leo Komarov. He was born in Estonia, um, but I know he he represents Finland uh, in uh, in the World Championships and. Uh, he would probably classify him, himself as even of Russian descent. Uh, Estonia is a really unique country. Um, you know, there's not, it's hard to have an Estonian identity because they're a former USSR state. Um, there's Estonian Estonians and there's Russian Estonians uh, who still consider themselves Russian. And then it, with even within the Estonian Estonians, they come from Nordic culture. So a lot of them, um, you know, identify with Swedish culture or Finnish culture. So it's like a melting pot uh, of people. So it's, uh, it, that was a really unique experience for me, but no, to answer your question, I never got to meet Leo, but I, I've heard uh, he did some, has done some stuff in Estonia with growing the game there and, and they love him there. Uh, everyone was a Leafs fan when I was there because he was playing with the Leafs at the time. So uh, I'm sure they've changed their allegiances now to follow where Leo is now. Uh, yeah, I remember this is our, I still can't believe I remember this, but uh, 
remember Leo Komarov being described as the Estonian-born, Swedish-schooled Finnish national from Russia. Exactly, yeah. So he, uh, he celebrated in a lot of countries, but uh, I was fortunate, one of my assistant coaches who, who didn't have an NHL career, um, uh, but his name was Toivo Surso. Uh, he was my assistant coach with the Estonian national program. He is actually the, the only true Estonian to be drafted in the NHL. He was drafted by the Detroit Red Wings, played in the American League, played in every uh, top league in, in Europe. Um, but uh, he doesn't get a lot of notoriety, but I, I try and give it to him any chance I get. He was, the, he was a true Estonian who was Estonia in their world championships and the only one that actually got drafted in the NHL. Uh, you know, Leo represents a lot of countries. So, yeah, little fun fact for you. With you being with some of these, you coached like the Division One B, One A. There's been a lot of talk about people getting mad when in the top division, Canada beats Germany like sixteen to two. They're trying to say like, yeah, let's let's shorten the division, so or shorten the leagues. And I, I want to know your thoughts on that because you you're hoping that these teams sometimes make someday make it up to the top. What are your thoughts on maybe them if they do end up going to six teams? What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that opinion, you know, like, and it's great that you brought that up because it's pretty relevant with the world juniors just finishing, like getting to that pinnacle, getting there is, is such a huge accomplishment for these countries. Like I, again, didn't get to see it through with the Koreans, but the pride in, in their ability to go from D1B to the, top level world championship in a course of four years was such an accomplishment. And yeah, they had the automatic bid to the Olympics, but they got to play in the Olympics and then play in the top level world championship just a, a couple months later. And I don't think they won a single game, but they did it. And it was amazing. And uh, you know, they were in their final game, they were circling the rink with Korean flags and there was tears because that was a huge accomplishment in itself, but not just for that team in that moment, but for what it meant for the future of the game. Um, you know, I think that'll mean that Korea will return to that level again. Uh, Great Britain got to that level for the first time in a number of years, like since the 50s uh, a year ago. And then they won a couple games and they stayed in that level. So they're still in the top level. So if it wasn't for those fringe teams to be able to get in and out, uh, they would never have that opportunity to make it. And then that wouldn't grow the game and that wouldn't peak interest in the game. And yeah, now, you know, we're talking like, let's cut it down to six. Well, who's number five and six then, right? Is it Czech Republic and is it, uh, Slovakia? Well, there was a time the Czech Republic and Slovakia were not in the top dogs. And it was because of those opportunities to play in those tournaments, get that experience, develop those coaches, coach and play against and alongside those elite level athletes to make their countries better at the game. So I think it's, if you take a more global vision toward it, we would be doing an injustice to the growth of the game in those countries if we cut them out of top level competition. Um, you know, if we wanna do a different tournament, uh, you know, the Ivan Halinka at the U18 level is a different tournament. Maybe the U20s can do a similar thing. Obviously the World Cup of Hockey does that, uh, you know, already. So maybe you can do something like that for U20s if you want to get the best on best under 20s in the world. And then you can introduce a North American team or a different kind of team, a young guns who are only maybe U18s. Um, sure, I'm all for it. I'm all for outside the box. In terms of IIHF World Championship, keep it as it is because it's really important to those nations. 
yeah, yeah. You mentioned the World Cup of Hockey. If that's ever going to come back again, because uh, with the NA, with uh, Gary, we never know. Comes back, comes back for one year, gone for a decade, comes back again. Uh, so backtracking a little bit back to your time with Grand Rapids, you had the uh, the chance to coach uh, NHL veteran Jordan Tutu for 51 games. Um, he is a he is a very well known player. Um, not much for well, not much for not for his scoring ability, but for his for his toughness and also um, for his off ice life. Uh, can you just take us through what he was like when you were playing uh, or when, he, when you were coaching him in Grand Rapids? Yeah, like I I, I know uh, that was we were coming off winning the Calder Cup, and then the next year we actually had a better season, regular season wise, uh, record wise. Um, was I know it was a really big challenge for him because that was his, his first season since he was like a rookie player or a prospect that he was playing a full season in the American Hockey League. And that's a tough thing to do when you're a, an everyday NHLer and then are faced with that scenario. So he had been placed on waivers, he cleared waivers, and now he's with us. Uh, what I'll say with my short experience with him is he was a consummate professional. Like he came down and you know somewhere in the back of his head that he was pissed off to be there. You know that, you know, he was making millions of dollars and he was playing in the American Hockey League. Now he's on the bus. He's going from charter flight with meals on it to a bus with snacks that our booster club was, was stuffing the overhead compartments with. Uh, you know that must have been a tough pill for him to swallow, but I will say that he was such a good presence for our guys. Uh, he was a leader. He didn't change his game. He was still tough. I saw him pound a few heads that year, you know, because because that's you got you got to understand that's tough for a guy like him. He he does it at the NHL level. He comes down. He doesn't want to do it at the American level, but at the American League level, there's some rookies and guys that want to prove themselves now. So they're asking Mister Tutu if he they can have their go at him, right? So he had to answer that call and, and do those kids a favor to let them fight him because he knows that when he got into the league, when he was playing for Milwaukee in the American League when he was a, a Nashville Predators prospect, he probably did the same thing. So that to see that respect that he had for those up and comers, to see how the, the mentorship he gave to our guys and to see him actually never complain, uh, it was outstanding. Uh, so I, I, I grew a lot of respect for him um, to see how he, he had changed his life. You know, he was a sober athlete for us. Uh, he, he had took on a leadership role and determined to get back to the NHL. I'm going to get back to the NHL. That was his goal, and he did. He ended up playing for the, the New Jersey Devils and the Chicago Blackhawks and finished his NHL career in the NHL where he belonged. So it was pretty inspiring uh, to be able to coach him for 51 games. And I, you know, I didn't coach him. You don't coach a guy like that when you're young. I was 28 years old, and he's an NHL veteran. Um, I, I was just fortunate to build whatever relationship I could with him, and he was really good to me and good to – the guys he played with. Uh, and I know that doesn't happen often with guys that get sent to waivers and, and are told to play in the American League. So uh, super guy, super guy. Um, do you guys, uh, and to this day, um, do you still got, do you still keep in touch? Like um, how, do you know how he's doing with his whole, uh, um, on his road to sobriety? Uh, you know what? Unfortunately, I don't keep in touch. Uh, you know, personally, I you know I follow him on Twitter and I follow his his life. I know he's a father now and a husband, uh, and uh, he's an advocate for a lot of things. Uh, so that's how you know I keep tabs on on a lot of players. It's hard to you know when you coach hundreds and hundreds of players, it's tough to keep personal relationships. 
you know, you hope you keep some good ones, uh, but you still try and keep tabs on as many people as possible. So he's a guy that, that I support any way I can, you know, when he, uh, every year he, he tweets out about how many years he's sober and I usually will retweet it. Or if he has a book, I try and retweet it. So I follow him and a lot of guys that way. Um, and hopefully any memory he has of me is a good one, but it, it was a short-term relationship, right? It was 51 games, but, uh, but I, I, uh, from what I see in, in the public eye, he's, he's doing great and I'm happy for him. All right. Uh, I think this is the perfect way to end it off. Uh, unless bro, you got anything else? No, I'm, I'm good. This was a great talk with, uh, with Spiros. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks having you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Kudos to you. Uh, guys as, as two young guys uh you know doing this uh you know I, i've seen your your guest list you guys are reaching out to some good people so that that's good it takes a lot of guts so great job guys thank you so much